0: This podcast is brought to you by Vital Lee. Vita Lee is the first comprehensive patient order system in Australia. Stocking all the major brands, including Metagenics, Bioceuticals, Orthoplex, Mediherb, Biomedica, plus 30 more, it's been custom-built for naturopaths, nutritionists, and integrative practitioners. Vital Lee works in three simple steps: add your patient, prescribe products and dosage info. And finally, your patient orders. Vitaly takes care of the rest. Vitaly frees up your time, allowing you to focus on your patients. To learn more, visit vital.ly. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Joining me on the line today is Annalise Kors. Annalise is a medical scientist, lecturer, naturopath, and author based in Sydney, Australia. She's worked as a medical scientist at Charles Sturt University, the Australian Institute of Sport, Australian Biologics, and both public and private hospital pathology labs. Annalise has been a practicing naturopath and lecturer since 2008. She lectures in human biochemistry and the medical sciences for ACNT and SSNT, as well as conferences and seminar presenting for fellow health professionals. Annalise is a past board member of the NHAA and is on the Scientific Advisory Board of the MIND Foundation. Most recently, Annalise has contributed to a natural medicine textbook due for publication in October 2017 with Elsevier. Welcome to FX Medicine, Annalise Kors. How are you?
1: Hello, Andrew. I'm really well. Thank you so much.
0: Now, today we're going to be talking about something that's a little bit quizzical, unresolved infections. But I think, first of all, we need to delve back into your background. How did you become a naturopath? What inspired you to do that?
1: Oh... Well, I probably wasn't inspired until I was about 23 years old, so that was quite a few years after leaving school, Mm. but um, I've always been obsessed with science. Uh I think anyone who knows me will attest to that. So a lifelong um, obsession with knowledge, anything to do with the human body, anything I could get my hands on in terms of books or experience to do with the human body um, I wanted to learn it. So for me, that meant a Bachelor of Medical Science degree as soon as I finished school. Yep. And I did that at Charles Sturt University in um, 1997.
0: Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I have to ask then, you know, those naysayers of natural health and natural health practitioners would say that naturopathy isn't science and science isn't naturopathy. How did you ratify the two?
1: <laughs> well, for starters, I completely disagree with that statement. <laughs> me as too. anyone knows me, <laughs> no. Um, but I do have to say that when I, I was studying for the first time back in, in medical science, I didn't give a lot of thought to natural medicine. Um, I did obviously have a great understanding of how the body works naturally and that it did have a very robust capability to heal itself given the right conditions given the right biochemistry, given, and I thought, the right diet at the time. But in terms of using um, food as medicine or even herbs, I didn't really have any inkling about how that would work or how that could work. So my, I guess, development in my mind about the body moving towards um, natural healing and using herbs and food, that came later after a few years of work. It definitely didn't happen when I was studying uh, the first time around.
0: Okay, so what, what twigged your interest? What piqued it? Um,
1: I think what turned it for me was uh, when I started working at the AIS, to be honest. I was I was still pretty young. I was only 21 years old, but that was my first job after I left medical science. Mm. and I started looking at these young, fit, elite athletes with everything at their doorstep in terms of help. They had nutritionists, they had physiologists, they had sports medicine physicians, they had everything that they could possibly need to be healthy, but many of them weren't. Many of them struggled with their immunity, many of them struggled with their energy levels, many of them struggled even with mental and emotional health. So for me, there was this huge question mark, what is it about these people that they can't, even though they've got the natural talent and the natural ability, they're still getting sick. So there were all these question marks coming up for me. And I was in the sports medicine lab, so we ran their tests. We did all their blood tests. We were doing, helping out with VO2 max testing and all the performance-based tests. So I could see there that, Diet could help some, diet might not help others, Mm. but again, a lot of them weren't well, to be honest. And I think stress had a huge um, impact on a lot of them. And that's when I started to think, hmm, here's this thing in our lifestyle that can have a huge effect on our well-being. And I think that's when I started to look at the natural side of things and not so much the medicines, but lifestyle that was starting to, um, I guess, pique my interest.
0: Yes. I think what's interesting is mm. the, the lifestyle choices that we make is now really headlining uh, yes. even confounding conditions and frustrating conditions like depression and not, light, yes. not lightly taken either. We're talking about severe depression. Um, yes. So I think it's very interesting how the world turns, isn't it? <laughs> yes. But I also agree with you because um, – you know, back in the day, as I said, I was a total naysayer. Now that I'm a little bit wiser and hopefully a little bit less arrogant, um, um, I think it's really interesting that even medical science, even those based only in an orthodox science, let's say it, Um, will say and will quite readily accept that trees need certain nutrition to give a certain yield for the benefit of humankind. Animals need certain nutrition to have a certain yield to benefit Mm -hmm. mankind. But they don't Mm -hmm. talk about humans giving a certain yield to benefit mankind. We're talking about working providing for our families, you know, having a social network and and existing in society. I think that's an interesting and somewhat of a shortfall in (laughs) this sort of thinking.
1: Absolutely. Mm. I agree with you. And I've often wondered myself, why do we think of humans as mammals as being so removed from the rest of the animal kingdom? Um, It doesn't make sense to me. And again, if you do speak to someone who's spent decades and decades as a medical scientist or a physiologist, they would say the same thing. Yeah. But I think there's this, I don't know if it's based on society or based on our ego as humans that somehow we're different to the rest of the natural world around us, I've I, would disagree with that.
0: Yes, totally, absolutely. And of course, Mm. one of the things that happens to us as a mammal, as an animal, is that we get infections from time to time. And normally they would resolve. But today we're going to be talking about unresolved infections. Mm -hmm. So firstly, can you take our listeners, and indeed me, through what do you mean by Mm -hmm. this?
1: Okay, so for me, an unresolved infection can be established by any microorganism. That might be an organism that's been treated previously through um, drugs, diet, herbs, or maybe it has been left untreated, but it hasn't achieved a full clinical resolution. So usually these infections occur when you've got a combination of high microbial virulence, so you've got a highly virulent strain of a microorganism. And then on top of that, you often have decreased host defense mechanisms. Yeah. Usually, these unresolved infections occur when you have that really unfortunate combining of those two factors the microbial virulence plus the um, diminished host. So, it's a really broad area. This is part of the problem that I find myself in clinic as a practitioner. Over the years, and also with other practitioners, when we speak about this, they present: in most tissues, most physiological systems are vulnerable to chronic infection. And what we need to look at is try try and identify the actual bug or whatever it is that might be causing this. But it may not be the first question or the first, I guess. it's not the first thing we think of when we're looking at someone in front of us because, you know, we have such good training in nutrition and we have such good training in other areas, but we we may not be so confident as naturopaths to think about bugs or think about infection or think about doing testing because it's not necessarily our forte. We're not, we're not trained in labs as naturopaths. Yeah. Um, you know, I came from labs, so I feel pretty confident in this area. Mm. But... We need to be thinking about them more because infections are becoming much, much more of a problem in modern practice, and they're becoming resistant to drugs, so they're showing up more and more.
0: So, so I guess the orthodox or the sort of obvious way to look at this would be an unresolved infection that keeps on sort of, you know, um, simmering away and then breaks out with you know another a, a fistula or a. a, a Pustule, something like that. Yes. But are we talking about only the immunocompromised here or are we talking about those that would otherwise be deemed as having a a reasonable immune system?
1: You see it in both. Um, You'll have people walking into your clinic who appear quite robust, fairly strong. They have no other comorbidities. They're functioning well in their jobs, but they have this hacking cough that won't go away that's been there all winter or they have this wound that just won't seem to resolve, Mm. or they have STIs that won't resolve. And usually it's when you start digging a little deeper that you find other things are going on. So there's other things in terms of um, the stress levels that might be contributing to a diminished host immune response. You might do some testing, and you find that they have... um, disorders with their white blood cells, and these might be related to nutritional deficiencies or it may be that they've got a relatively common um, issue with um, an inherited neutropedia or something like that. Right. So it's only after you start digging that you start to find the reasons why these people are immune-compromised, but they can present as being fairly robust. And they'll often tell you how good their diet is, but when you start to dig deeper, as any naturopath or nutritionist listening will tell you, you know that the definition of a good diet (laughs) for someone in the general public is not often not a good diet at all. So yes, they can look the picture of health, but physiologically, biochemically, that's probably not the
0: case. I think dietarily, I think it's interesting that the standard Australian diet and the standard American diet are the same thing. They're both sad.
1: Yes, yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really unfortunate acronym, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So just before you were sort of reminding me, I guess, or you're forming a picture in my mind of, let's say a herald, a heralding infection, Mm -hmm. an unresolved Mm Obvious infection, but maybe another culprit that might be underlying the true nature of why the first one is becoming is is un, remaining unresolved. Is that what's happening here? Mm. Like a you know a chaperone, a spy, if you like. A...
1: Yes, that that can be the case, and um, a lot of a lot of these infections are latent. So mm-hmm. a lot of the viruses that lead to unresolved infections are latent, they're residing within our cells, our glands and in our epithelial tissues and they are just waiting for that moment, waiting for that chance to set up a new infection. So um, I guess latent infections and ones that are lying dormant within our tissues, we can lump them into this category but then we also have infections that do um, basically Set up an infection because they are brand new, they've been acquired through the community somewhere. Yeah. But the reason they were able to, I guess, inoculate and colonize our tissues is because the again, the terrain, this term we use all the time, was in such a poor state that it was very easy for them to do something like this. So we have the combination of those latent, dormant infections popping up and we have the combination of acquired infections from the community that may not be associated with latency or recurrence, but they just jump in and they can just take over because our, our tissues are so unhealthy and our immune system is just not able to to respond
0: in a robust way. So so the two, I guess, opposite ends of the pole for me that I'm thinking, I'm p- just picturing in my mind here, would be like EBV and herpes. Um, yes. Um, herpes simplex. One, yes. So yes. Uh, in my mind, like the EBV, I thought we contracted it later on in life, but indeed <laughs> apparently if we contracted earlier, it becomes a problem um, yes. around the teenage years, right? So yes. the whether the first recurrence or a recurrence of the um, symptomatology of EBV is this fatigue, this flu-like thing, the glands come up, that sort of feeling of, let's say, a a flu-y type syndrome, Um, whereas the herpes would be more like a Mm -hmm. fulminant or acute type infection where you get the blisters, the itching, the, Mm. you know, and and it... unless somebody is fulminantly immunocompromised by another complex disorder, then they normally resolve in an acute way over a period of days, perhaps weeks, if they've got a really bad case. Yes. But, like, I get that I'm not picturing this right. I get that there's – what I'm picking up from you is that that's not the complete picture.
1: Well, I think – no, I think what what you're saying is right. We have these um, these – latent infections that that can present in a way where normally we'll, we'll be able to cope with them very, very well, but mm. often another illness on top of them will bring them out. And that's definitely right. the case with EBV. We yep. know that. Yep. Um, that's definitely the case with HSV as well. So... That's when you were talking earlier about them being like a chaperone. Other infections on top can actually create the conditions for these ones to present again. Right. Um, I think the other part of the issue is is that some of these infections don't we, – we never remember the first encounter. Right. We, we can never recall that first microbial encounter. Yeah. And it may have happened when you were young and when you were a little bit more robust with your health. And then all of a sudden it presents when you're older and you might be a teenager or at university or working or whatever. And then it presents. And that that is a chronic infection. It's been there the whole time. It's yeah. just that now it's very, very obvious and you're starting to get those clinical signs and symptoms. So. Those infections, I see those as chronic infections. They are somewhat unresolved because but but we can't get rid of them completely either. They are always there. But for me, I think what I'm trying to say is that they they can be controlled, but we need to make sure that we create the conditions to make them behave if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, so to keep them in check. Uh, look, I think yes. this is very interesting because uh, I was speaking with Dr. Mark Donohoe. Um, I
1: listened. Re- I loved it. It was amazing. About ABV. Okay,
0: <laughs> so like, to me it was, it was like Prometheus. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: I was like, yes. what the? <laughs> yes.
1: Um,
0: so basically there's nothing that we can do to thwart a virus, invading our tissues given that we have contact with it um, and given that it's a pathogenic virus we, I mean indeed we have a virome, a gut viriome yes. Um, yes. so it, it really is we just need to broaden our horizons from more than bacteria to include fungi and bacteria as part of our normal absolutely. commensals
1: as, absolutely yes but when yes. do we and suspect
0: a problem how do you pick up that there's an unresolved infection when like what's the clinical picture here
1: Okay, for me, they become unresolved when they start to interfere with life and yeah. they're starting to produce these low grade symptoms that are interfering with people's wellbeing. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, again, um, Mark is a great expert on EBV, and a lot of people with this particular infection, even though they may not have, um, you know, actual overt, really strong signs and symptoms. Of EBV, they're often wandering around with low-grade fatigue most of the time, right. or they've, they're feeling swelling in their gland and in their throat most of the time. If they're run down and they're working hard, they feel like this most of the time. It's only when they start to take a break or work settles down or a stress um, a stressful time in their life starts to calm down a bit that they think, "Oh, I don't feel so glandy anymore. I don't yeah. feel so tired anymore." So EBV is one of them, but HSV can be a little bit like that as well because a lot of people may not get the actual open um, sores or wounds or cold sores on their face Mm. when they're experiencing a resurgence of this chronic infection. But they will say things like, "I I have pain down the side of my face or these little vesicles are popping up. They haven't turned into the you know the full on wound or the the crusting over and the weeping wound mm. that's shedding virus but they they feel often most of the time that there's something there and for me that's when i think okay the virus is in there there's not much we can do about that but this is a sign that your body is not coping if mm. it's able to cause you symptoms and your immune system is just not coping with that. So for me, I see that as a red flag, that if they were to get something else on top of this, another infection, the influenza virus, if it happened to be winter, I'd be pretty worried about them, about how badly another virulent virus or bacterial infection might actually affect them.
0: Hmm. Are there any systems that are more prone to these sort of unresolved infections, Uh, you know, we would obviously think Mm. lymphatics because we, as you said, you know, we feel glandy and, you know, the snuffleupagus, that sort of thing. But one thing that really interests me, and I remember uh, this was a naturopath who used to come and visit to me where I used to consult and him Mm. and he was a Canadian bloke, I'll always remember. And he had this pain in his foot, could not get rid of Mm. it. What he, whatever mm-hmm. he tried, whoever he saw, orthodox medicine, tried everything, could not get rid of it, finally ended mm-hmm. up on the doorstep of a certain naturopath in uh, the south southern suburbs of Brisbane. Yeah. And... He said, he, he came up with the naturopathic diagnosis of you've got a virus sort of that's located. It seems to be embedded in your tish, in the tissues of your foot. Now, this naturopath, mm-hmm. this Canadian naturopath and I laughed. We went, oh, what a load of rot, what a load, come on, pseudocytes. This guy treated it and it got better. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, and we were both dumbfounded. We were like, what's yeah. going on here? Now, mm. you could say it was self-limiting. You could say it was going to happen. You could talk about placebo and psychosomaticism and things like that. But yes. the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is no other treatment approach of the orthodox branch worked
2: right. <laughs>
0: despite him wanting resolution. So how come the psychosomaticism didn't happen with those treatment approaches? So that was mm. my big question. So therefore, I go back mm. to my question. Are there more mm. systems that tend to be more prone to symptoms?
1: Uh, yes. I often find that anything that's an epithelial surface is going to be um, an anatomical target or an anatomical tissue where these critters can take up residence. And if anyone thinks back to their anatomy and physiology lectures, (laughs) epithelial tissue covers, I don't know what the actual percentage is, but it's most of the human body. So we're talking about the, the lining of the gut, the lining of the reproductive tract, You've got epithelial tissue, obviously your skin. Um, that's not to say that you know if it was if it was that bad, as bad as I'm making it sound, we would have unresolved infections everywhere on every epithelial tissue, and we don't. So we have to think about the environment of the epithelial surfaces, and we have to think about what the environment, what the chemical conditions are or what the even the anatomical conditions are of those epithelial surfaces. In any organ system, and what what are they? How are they behaving in a way that's encouraging this this growth and this colonization and this replication of microbes? So any system can be involved. Obviously, the skin, and that sounds like it was the scenario for your patient that you're talking about mm. with the foot, but also uh, bladder. We're talking about uretogenital tract we're talking about the lungs, we're talking the gut, any of them. And this is where case-taking becomes really important. Mm. It, it's um, it's very important to ask certain questions because a lot of these infections can mimic other problems and infection may not be the first thing that we think about. And so we start going down the track of, oh, maybe it's... Um, Maybe it's an issue with nutrient deficiencies. Maybe, you know, our differential diagnosis has to become forefront in our mind so that we can think is this infection or is it something else? Is it functional? What's going on?
0: But do we have a usual suspects lineup that we can blame? Like, are there certain pathogens or. Certain, yeah, that we need to be looking at? Yeah, certain first.
1: microbes. Yeah. Yeah, look, we do. Um, first and foremost, I. Generally, think of bacteria and um, viruses as being the main culprits. So, with bacteria, there's you know there's so many. The common ones are like streptococci, staphylococci. They're sort of your epithelial surfaces to do with your lymph and your tonsils and your skin. In the gut, you've got enterococci and Escherichia. You've also got a few others like. Um, in the lungs you've got mycobacterium homophilus Neisseria and then if you're starting to go towards other systems they might if it's something a bit more systemic you might be thinking mycoplasma Bartonella Borrelia there's so many yeah. um, this is where we sort of have to dig out whatever we used as our textbook for microbiology throughout naturopathy and start and start having to think and and, in a lot of cases, we might have to start ringing the labs and talking to the lab staff about do you what sort of tests do you do? I'm surprised how many naturopaths don't ring up labs and speak to the scientists. I really am, because yeah. when I was a scientist, we used to speak with doctors and even some naturopaths all the time. You know that's what the lab staff are there for, and yeah. I would encourage any naturopath or nutritionist or herbalist that's listening. To ring the labs, you might not be able to speak to the scientists then and there, but they will call you back, and you can talk to them about the types of tests that they do, and and get a little bit more um, educated in this. Um, you know, it's a service that's there that I, I believe naturopaths aren't using enough, but definitely bacteria. Um, I also think it's starting to get into the realm of the cell wall deficient organisms, they're, they are a huge culprit in these unresolved and chronic infections right. and the viruses that we mentioned before. So mm. Hepstein-Barr, but also C and V, cytomegalovirus, yep. um, human papillomavirus, um, Hep C and HIV, I probably won't discuss because they're a separate issue altogether. But you know, for for most people that have issues with chronic infections, it's the bacteria and the viruses and the cell wall deficient bacteria.
0: Can I just ask though, with regards to Hep? I know you don't want to go into it, and that's fine because it's so convoluted. Yeah. But we know pretty yeah. well, like you know, Hep B. Yes, we know about it. Hep A, foodborne. Hep C. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. What mm-hmm. about the other hepatitis? Says.
1: Um' uh, don't so go to g two,
0: or h or yeah,
1: well, last time I checked there was um a D and an e d and e right. um yes, there might be others now. I haven't really had a look at it for at least the last twelve months um, but look they are they are relatively common, they're certainly not as common as um a and b yeah. But they, they are measured in labs. Um, when I was working in labs, we didn't measure them routinely. They mm. were specialized assays yeah. that were only at the request of, you know, if there was a particular doctor. Usually it wasn't GPs. It might be an immunologist right. or a hepatologist that yep. was requesting them. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling these days they, they might be a little bit more routine um, and they're not such a specialized test. But they're you know they're fairly straightforward viruses to um, to screen for or measure in terms of the instrumentation that labs have. Yeah. So yeah, and the other thing is they often follow a particular clinical presentation. Some of them often look very similar to um, say Hep B or Hep A. So um, yeah, they are definitely you can screen for them. Um, again, if you're not sure whether the lab that thinking of using screens for them, you just call the lab and ask them.
0: And you mentioned Hmm. cell-wall deficient bacteria before. Now, this is something I need education on.
1: Um, It starts a long, long time ago. Um, I think it was in the 30s that they were first described by some microbiologists. And when I was um, working at Australian Biologics, it was still... For me, it was new. I'd never... Learned about these in medical science, but I was working with Jenny Burke and we could see them. We could see them in people's blood. And basically, these are um, completely resistant to antibiotics, so we can't be thinking that we're going to treat them with our cephalosporins or our penicillins because they don't have a cell wall. Mm. So, at some point in the evolution of bacteria, certain certain strains have developed the genetic changes to actually grow and multiply without their cell wall. And usually it's that cell wall. It's a peptidoglycan wall. So it's a mixture of all sorts of different carbohydrates, proteins and lipids. It protects bacteria and it allows it to replicate. It um, protects it in, um, I guess, certain situations that may not be favourable for the bacteria, but these cell wall deficient ones have found a way to get rid of that cell wall because they can evade the host immune response, but at the same time, they're still able to grow without the cell wall intact. So clinically, the big issues with these are that they are not susceptible to antibiotics, Um, they are not able to be cultured. So if you send samples off to labs, they won't be able to culture them, visualize them, identify them, or detect them on any of the routine agar or culture methods. Mm -hmm. And I guess the big thing in terms of the research at this point is, well, how how much are they actually causing disease? Because L-forms even though they're able to grow and replicate, it's considered most microbiologists or bacteriologists say that they are quite docile. They don't think that they cause a lot of uh, problems in terms of infection, but then other other scientists on the, on, I guess the opposing side of things, they know that is completely not true. Mm. Um, they're, starting to become implicated as a causative factor within autoimmune disease, but at the same time, a lot of scientists think that they are implicated in these unresolved or chronic infections. So it's still very much, um, I would say, we're a little bit in the dark with them, but the amount of research that's come out in the last 10 years since um, I was working directly in labs and looking at them has been phenomenal. So it's it's something that I would say watch this space, follow the research closely because mm. I think it's just going to become more and more of a issue. Um, there's some new really great research papers out that have only just come out in the last six months and they've all got titles like the new bacteriology. So this is something that um, we need to start looking at this because all the research is moving away quite significantly away from antibiotics and looking at how we might start to target these cell wall-deficient forms because we may not have a lot of evidence as to their virulence yet, but the way that they're, they're able to enter the bloodstream, so if they're in the bloodstream, they're entering every organ. So it's a worry.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know... I, th- the days of antibiotics as the first call for treating infections—we know they're already numbered. It's—it's—it's it's, mm. it's been this way for ten years. It's just in the last couple of years, people are going, "No, guys, really, seriously, it's here. It's not going yeah. to. It's yeah. here. We're already yeah, here. Yeah,
2: it's here now. Yeah, it's yeah.
0: here and it's now. And it's very interesting that they're really scrabbling for, uh, you know, new types of antibiotics. I, I, I understand mm-hmm. there was like three totally different types that were released was it last year 2016 maybe 2015 mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Uh, oh was it golden staff um something probably like that. yeah i think the, it was skin one of the
1: community yeah hospital acquired
0: ones yeah. yeah and i think it was more skin born rather than um mm. um visceral yes take me through a little bit more of these l forms of bacteria if they don't have a cell wall how come they don't lies how come they don't break apart
1: Well, it usually has a lot to do with... So there's still some membrane capability there. They Ah. still have the ability to stay intact because there are some membrane structures that are retained. Right. So it's really just that their cell wall is shed. And the other really, I guess, interesting thing with these is sometimes when you visualize them under the microscope, sometimes they do look very intact. They're very spherical. They... They sort of sit in these beautiful, they look like little pearls, hmm. little clusters of pearls in, in the peripheral blood. But sometimes you see them blebbing. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's a technical word because I did read it in the paper. Blebbing. So, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> they bleb. And they have this really amorphous shape. So not only are they, we sort of think of them as being fragile because they don't have that cell wall, but that membrane integrity that's retained, Allows them to um, almost stretch, and often in some cases you'll see that they develop these like little um, finger-like projections, mm. and and when you see those, that's that's showing that that membrane integrity that's still there is is remaining intact to allow them to change shape and to change morphology without lysing, as you said. That's it is an indication for me um, and other, I guess, other scientists that look into this, that would indicate some sort of strength and resilience of this particular form. Because if they don't just lie,s then mm. they're often they're obviously quite robust.
0: Yeah, I just think it's really mm. interesting that that each uh, generation of scientists, mm-hmm. let's call it, let's mm-hmm. call them, yes. will say that today is the truth, uh, without mm. realizing that. You know, you now lamb-based what happened 50 years ago. What do you think is going to happen 50 years in the future? Do you really think that this is going to be the end of the truth? Facts constantly change. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so, what do we do to help these patients? And, and I guess, you know, are there are there certain tests that we should use to, in preference of others, to uncover these unresolved infections?
1: Yes, I think there's there's a couple of approaches that we need to have at the absolute forefront if we if we strongly suspect um, an unresolved infection or there's specific tests that are better with L forms as well that we can talk about. Mm. But I think for me, if you strongly suspect infection, then the source of the infection should be identified if at all possible um particularly if it's something that's coming from outside and it's community acquired so if if you know for sure that you don't have something like um that what you have is not an EBV issue or yeah. a CMV issue or a HSV issue and it's a it's an acquired say microbial infection from a bacterium finding the source is really important because this is going to stop reinfection right so We need to start thinking where where are people getting this infection from? If it was a one-off chronic infection that just took ages to resolve, you don't have to worry about this. But definitely source of infection is a big one. So you might start thinking about where do they work? Do they have pets? If it's STI related, you have to think about um, what's going on with partners or anything like that. Um, So we do need to test and we need to identify the pathogen and work out the roots of infection, if that makes sense. So we have routine cultures that we can do, Um, but if we're talking about, say, L-forms or maybe some of these intracellular bacteria, they won't really grow on routine cultures. So all your things like your blood cultures, your mucosal surface swabs, any of those things, sputum um, cultures they may not show anything, and this is where PCR polymerase chain reaction testing yep. can be very, very useful because ah. PCR, as you know, you and your listeners probably know, it's for detecting um, segments of DNA, yep. and um, that's really probably one of the tests of choice. So, you use um, PCR unfortunate...
0: even with bacteria, is that what you're saying? Yes, ah, forgive yes. me, okay.
1: Yes, you can use it with bacteria, absolutely.
0: And does it tend to pick up the L forms or any infection, like with with the normal presentation of the bacteria?
1: Yeah, it can. the The thing with PCR is you have to use a sample that you strongly suspect the bacteria, or if it's screening the viruses, um, it has to be there. So if it's again, this sort of depends on. The presentation. So, m- most PCR and the PCR that we were doing at Australian Biologics, people were sending us not just blood, we were testing saliva, we were testing swabs, like direct swabs of a site. Uh, we were testing urine, we were testing even tissue and biopsy samples. But the great thing about PCR is that it, it does pick up the DNA if you can't culture the microbe, and you can also send a whole you know, a whole host of different tissues or secretions. that it does. It's not just blood, right? So, I think probably the main um, deterrent with PCR for a lot of people is the cost because it's not a um, it's not a cheap test by any means. Mm. It's a more intricate um, testing methodology, and it does um, cost a little bit more in order to get it done. So. What I would say to people is, if you're thinking of doing it, you really have to have a good justification for doing it, and you have to strongly suspect um, that certain pathogens are there. You might even have um, a strong suspicion that there is a pathogen present, and you need to identify exactly which one it is. Mm. So. This is where, again, speaking to the laboratory and speaking to the scientists who run these tests is very, very useful. Um, It may not be as useful speaking to, say, um, a GP about it because they don't often, not all of them, but um, some of them may not have the intricate knowledge of the actual um, assay and the testing methodology.
0: Yeah, there are too few GPs out there Mm. that are... Um, specialist yeah. in pathology some
1: well, yeah, uh, well, I mean, they've got so much else to learn and mm. think about, so oh, but it's a some of they do have that, yeah, yeah, exactly right, and that's this is what medical scientists do, mm. um you know, they're not seeing patients, but this is what they do every single day they 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 know how the tests run, they know how the assays work, they know how the methodology works, and they know whether certain specimens are going to be right for. The, the tests that they run.
0: Yeah. So, looking at a treatment approach, do you have any specific types of treatment approaches, things that you employ, and, and what are the aims of that treatment?
1: Look, I think um, antimicrobials, without a doubt, have to become your first line of treatment. So, obviously, identifying, getting an identification. Of The pathogen that's causing this is important through your testing, whether that's routine pathology or specialist pathology like PCR. And then you have to start selecting your antimicrobial agent. So again, this varies wildly depending on what's coming up. Is it, a, is it viral? Is it bacterial? Is it intracellular? Is it L-form? But I, I am not averse to people taking antibiotics because I've seen a lot of great resolution of infection from taking antibiotics if people need it, particularly for the big nasty bugs um, and bacterial infections. But having said that, it's also a case of using herbal antibacterials and herbal antimicrobials as well. Mm. So um, I believe that they have a great impact on these infections, particularly after they've finished their course of antibiotics, you might actually give a a course of um, herbal antibiotics or herbal antivirals as well. And obviously, if they're going to take antibiotics or they need to take them, that's when a lot of what we do comes into play as well. So any resolution that needs to occur in the gut with gut health and gut integrity, we have to work there as well. Yeah. I mean, any any of the listeners that are herbalists would be starting to think, oh, yes, hydrastis kind canadensis, of uber earthy, baptisia, melissa, hypericin, uncaria, all those um, um, antimicrobials in terms of antibacterial, antiviral, they work yeah. quite well.
0: G- yeah. Given that you um, there's a... In my mind, it's the propagation of a myth, but anyway, um, out in the community about the use of um, uh, adaptogens, for instance, an immune adaptogen, Mm. a herbal immune adaptogen of note, astragalus or astragalus. Mm. um, Mm -hmm. The adage that is constantly touted out there is you should never Mm. use it in an infection because it'll set the infection in, which I think is cod's wallet when you look at the research on it. Because the research mm. resolved viral coals helped to resolve. You don't yeah. have that sort of thing in a chronic situation. That's a cute thing. Yeah. So yeah. I I think the, like, I'm not a TCM practitioner, but I just think we're we're becoming rather arrogant in our Western ways when we say, when we're using uh, a traditional Chinese medicine, but we yeah. have this mentality of using it in a Western format, if you like. Um yeah. yeah. Do you ever employ Astragalus in these unresolved infections, albeit in a chronic situation or what?
1: Look, I have. Um, and when I started doing it, I did it with a lot of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do to this patient? <laughs> but I also had great mentors, herbalists that have been practicing for so long, saying I've done it and it never caused any problem. Yeah but I also thought about sitting in Materia Medica classes, learning not to do it. So I'm a very cautious practitioner. I started out only doing it with the patients that I knew through talking to them and knowing about their history that were just that little bit more robust. Um, I've, never, I've never done it with a um, paediatric patient. Um, I haven't done it with children. Mm. Um, I've never really done it apart from someone that's been a little bit stronger in their constitution. Um, I've never really done it with someone with a big, a big huge history of atopy. And that's, probably, uh,
2: that's, that's probably
1: just because I'm a little bit cautious. Yeah. But I have done it. I have done it with patients that, um, that I felt confident that it would be all right. And it has been all right. It, there's never been this problem where all of a sudden – Everything's worse because they had astragalus during their infection, but mm. I've done it cautiously. I,
0: I guess I have this picture in my mind of a patient who get, uh, frequently gets swollen glands and fatigued upon presentation of an acute stressor, um, but they mm-hmm. don't sort of break out in an infection, but they just get this glandy mm-hmm. sort of feeling. Yes. And, and yes. I, I, I guess where I'm heading to here is. In the old days of medicine, you would say swollen tonsils, cut them out, no more problem, they're gone. We also used to do that of the appendix. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I learned that we've, Mm -hmm. you know, now that we've realised that the appendix is actually a reservoir of very important bacteria for your gut. Indeed, might help in um, Mm -hmm. inhibiting the priming for autoimmune disease. um, Mm -hmm. That um, you know they're trying to save the appendix and. Mm maybe more than ever today, we're trying to save the adenoids and the tonsils.
2: Yeah.
0: I guess given that there's at some point, there's a pragmatic decision that has to be made for a child that simply can't breathe and their schoolwork's going down and they're just, yeah. they can not even sleeping. But I, you know, I, I get that sort of part of medicine where there really is a need and you don't like it, but you just got to do it. But Absolutely. apart from that, yeah. what about employing you know, I guess the old naturopathic way would be a diet, you know, get them off Mm -hmm. milk and things like that. And Mm -hmm. yet what we're talking here is more employing antimicrobials to, to address the infective state of it. Do you ever look at things that might not be in concordance with a good naturopathic diet? Like for instance, a dairy product called colostrum, which I love, but do you ever use that sort of stuff?
1: I have um I have used colostrum again it's not something that I would use with everyone mm. it's not it's not something that I think oh this is a cure that everyone would benefit from mm. but um, look colostrum has been it has a lot of research behind it and a lot of really good research behind it and historically I have used that um in active infection, in chronic infection and in preventing recurrence of infection. Um, Probiotics are obviously um, a big important one here as well because of their immune priming effects and and we know that the gut is absolutely implicated in any issue of poor immunity that's leading to chronic unresolved infections. I think for me... The way I practice is that I really like to look at how a person is presenting. I, I love to look at what they're eating yeah. and I absolutely want to get their diet one as much as I possibly can, get their body eating the micronutrients and the macronutrients that are actually going to build the tissue from the ground substance up
2: yeah.
1: to be able to defend this person against this latent thing that keeps coming and going or these community-acquired infections that they're just not fighting or backing up against very well. So for me, it's mm-hmm. very much about the food that they're eating. There are certain things that I do take people off for a little while, but um, Most people, I would look at dairy and casein and gluten and just have a talk to them about that, and they may be off it for a while. It may not be forever. It depends, again, on the person and their unique situation. Um, But I start looking at things like how much vitamin A are they getting in their diet? How much vitamin C are they getting in their diet? For me, fat and protein is a big one because this is what – a lot of these tissues are built upon. If we're not getting enough protein in our diet, if the fats that we're getting in our diet are not the right type or the right quantity, we're just not going to be able to mount immune responses. And when when we are sick, if it's just a mild chronic low-grade infection or a fulminant raging acute infection, we use up so, so much nutrition. So many micronutrients are used up Our surfaces tend to get sloughed off and eroded down, and we need to replace them. So those two macronutrients are big for me, fats and proteins. And um, I usually go through someone's diet meticulously, and not just what they're eating now, but historically Hmm. as well, particularly what they've been having and eating in the last 12 months, two years, three
0: years. However, yeah, I know. (laughs) It's full on. There's a recall recall dietary uh, survey. (laughs)
1: Yes. Can
0: can I ask, what about um, traditional therapeutic dietary interventions, like, for instance, the Chinese, um, you know, forgive my ignorance about this done properly, but... To my mind, it was, you re- know, really well-boiled, double, triple-boiled rice, which is called Gak. Is that right?
1: hmm you know I about... remember learning about Gak. Okay, great. Um, I have never used it, but oh. I did learn about
0: it, yeah. And, yeah. of course, the other one that goes, I guess, the more Western style of that would be the old chicken broth for, um, mm-hmm. you know, coughs mm-hmm. and colds, which in yeah. grandma's day would not have been from a little sachet or a tin. It nice. would have actually been made from, what do you know, guys, bone broth. Um, yes. and carcasses of chicken, which so yes. what do you employ yes. that sort of thing?
1: Yes, I do. And there are a lot of old traditional, I guess you call them recipes or formulations that you pretty much you can bring out any time someone doesn't have to be unwell, but you bring them out when they're unwell. Yeah, so the great, I mean, I tend to use the Western, um, I guess, formulations or recipes, because that's what I'm most familiar with. I haven't studied a lot of the Eastern or TCM approaches. But when you look at things like the chicken soup, for example, it's full of protein. Mm. And and you think about what's in the bones of these animals. It's the, it's the same thing or similar things that are in our bones. And... Our bones are where our blood comes from, and within our blood we have white blood cells, and white blood cells produce antibodies. So, of course, the components for building those structures and tissues in a human body, if we're using those structures and tissues from an animal, then we're going. It's a way of replacing those things. So, I mean, I'm I'm not vegetarian or vegan, and I. I I really think that if something like this is an issue for people, we do have to look at protein and, and fat because these things help to build a robust immune system yeah. and they help to fight infection. And, you know, we need to be looking at people's blood test results. I've had so many recently um, where you look at someone's total protein level on a full blood not a full blood count but a biochemistry profile, their total protein's low and then you start to look at the subsets and their albumin might be low but often it's their globulin levels as well and globulins are what go on to make antibodies for us. So anything in our diet that can help bring that up is going to be helpful. So, yeah, the chicken soup is a very, very good one and, um, everyone's into drinking broth at the moment and I think it's great but I sort of think it's really just the liquid we need to start um, especially with people that need to fight infections eat eat all of it eat the fatty bits that came off with it eat the chunky bits that came off with it eat a you know it might not look pleasant but eat all the bits because a lot of that a lot of stuff being thrown away just to make a a clear broth. Eat it all. It's all useful. It's all nutritious.
0: Yeah, it's a dangerous thing to put a a, um, a dead chook in front of me. <laughs> not, not a lot of it gets to see a second meal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, what about any yeah. caveats? Any things that you've got to be careful of when you're treating mm-hmm. this sort of patient?
1: Um, look, I think some of the caveats include if you are going to use herbs. Mm. Um, some of them, particularly any that have the really high alkaloid content, such as hydrastis canadensis or golden seal, it's got, or anything that's got a huge amount of berberine in there. Some of these alkaloid-containing herbs should only be used short term, and you do need to monitor the patient closely, um, just in terms of their. I guess their liver function, their gut, you know, you don't really want to um, you create a situation. Yeah. yeah, wipe them out, chronic diarrhea, anything mm. like that. So, I mean, but that's, I guess, the case with any um, herbal medicine prescription that, you know, is just short-term and it's treating something. I mean, you're, you're using these, like, medicines. Mm. Like, they, these are, the way I view herbs is that they're drugs. Mm. So we don't just sort of say, here's your herb mix, um, call me, Later, I sort of, you know, I I monitor anyone closely that that I think need herbal medicines. But that's yeah, anything where you're using a lot of berberine, I tend to say monitor closely. Um, I also think that we need to be careful around always treat what's in front of you, and that's something that I always keep in the forefront of my mind, particularly mm. with infections, because it can take a, a little while to get results back. Sometimes if you're employing PCR or you're sending specimens off to, away to different labs, it can take a, one week, two week, maybe even longer before the results are back for you. Yeah. but. Um, I really think that treating what's in front of you is important. You can initiate some kind of treatment straight away, even if it's just dietary. You don't have to sort of go in with um, herbal medicines and antimicrobials straight away, but you can do so much with someone in those early days, um, having frank conversations with the patients about stress and anything that's contributing to the um, poor immunity, diet, any of these things. So, I guess another caveat for me is don't don't feel unconfident because you think that the labs are going to provide all the answers for you. The answers are there in front of you, so don't don't um, neglect them. Don't neglect what's in front of you. Yeah. Um, I also think that another caveat is to make sure that you don't always suspect an infection because I know that the whole topic today has been around these unresolved infections and I think they are becoming more problematic in clinical practice, but always having a differential diagnosis in your mind as well because um, we've got things like malnutrition and autoimmune diseases can all manifest mm. in a, a similar clinical picture
0: responsible so make, very well done
1: yeah so making sure that differential diagnosis is always at the forefront of your mind as well because it can be easy to think oh this is infection it's got to be infection let's send off all these swabs let's do some pcr but it may not be yeah so i think that's another one for me is to um, yeah, make make sure that you always you've got your your DDs <laughs> written yeah. down in front of you and be Abs- thinking of them all the time.
0: Absolutely. So, what about expectations mm-hmm. of treatment when you're dealing with you know unresolved infections of let's say a virus EBV? We're not going to mm-hmm. get rid of it, right? So we're talking about long term management.
1: Yes, long term management um, definitely involves getting the patient on board and not allowing them to become too passive in this whole process. So, I know that in your previous um, podcast that you did with Mark Donoghue, who's talking about EBV as being a, the great barometer mm. of a patient's health, and that's absolutely true. It's, it's true of EBV, and it's also true of HSV. It's true of CMV. It's true of um, anything that we tend to carry in terms of a virus, but also it tends to be the case with seasonal infections as well that we pick up. Um, it is the great barometer of our health as to how easily we pick things up. I always say to people, don't think that you'll ever get through life. And even for naturopaths, you know, there's this idea that we we've, we've got to be healthier and never get sick and we never get infections and never get the flu. That's not right. We're human beings. No. So the the idea is have a look. And identify with your patients, what are the things that tend to trigger these episodes for you? I always draw up a big list of triggers um, with my patients. I, I do. I generally do it with them. And they'll say things like, oh, I know that it's when I work late. You know, I don't get home from work until 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Or I know that the – it might be just these tiny little things like I stayed up watching Netflix all night and I didn't get enough sleep. If you can find the contributing factors that affect someone's sleep, which affects their immune system, or affects their stress levels, which affects their immune system, anything that interrupts their ability to eat a healthy diet or be organized enough to eat a healthy diet – all of these tiny little things that we think are so um, non-significant, you add them up and that's when people start to say, oh, the glandy feeling's coming on again. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can feel the tingle. Oh, oh now I I'm really tired. Um, oh, th- I had a really bad year with flus this year because I just didn't look after myself. So for me, the outcomes and the prognosis are always better when the patient is very well educated on understanding their triggers. And that often comes from really frank conversations and patients really being quite honest with themselves. And they may not, the biggest, I guess, successes I've had are with the patients who are willing to go there. I've had plenty of patients not willing to go there who think, oh, you know, sleep's got nothing to do with it. Diet's got nothing to do with it. And, Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get through to everybody and that's, you know, everyone's on a a different tangent and a different journey with their health. But I think, um, yeah, frank conversations with people about stress, sleep, diet, lifestyle, it's very important.
0: Mm. We, Mm. I think you and I need to be doing a case history at, at some stage.
1: Yeah, it's... Very much, you know, we all know it, all practitioners know it, there's an art, there's an art to all of this but you're never taught, that you never get enough practice in. Um, even if you've been practicing for five years, you, you, know, you still don't, you never feel quite on top of it, do you?
0: Oh, look, um, I, I think the day you think you know it all is the day you should hang up your shingle because you've just become exactly, arrogant. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> but...
1: exactly right, exactly right.
0: Annalise Kors, thank you so much for taking us through unresolved infections today. I think there's uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg for me. I've, I think I've got so much mm-hmm. more to learn. And indeed, I think we will be um, in de- uh, delving into a case history or two in, uh, in future mm-hmm. times. So thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. us on FX Medicine today. And indeed, thank you so much for taking that responsible point about the differential diagnosis. Don't always think that it's what we think we see. No,
1: that's yeah. right. That's right. Yep very true thank you so much I've really enjoyed talking to you I hope it's been
0: useful for people this is FX Medicine I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook if you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts please don't forget to share us with your colleagues family and friends